You recall when we watch a news uh, story on TV or <clears throat> online, we're shown a video clip of what happens, and for 30 seconds you see somebody doing something, or you see some event, you see it, you hear it, it all goes in, and after 30 seconds or 45 seconds, whatever it is, the, the clip is over, you have seen and heard the news, but for the next 30 minutes, spin commentators will try to tell you how to understand what you just saw and heard. At the end of that 30 minutes, you won't remember and you won't know what happened because so many opposing views and different ways of understanding are presented and are usually or often possible. And so how are we to know for ourselves? How are we to understand for ourselves what we have actually seen with our own eyes, heard with our own ears? The question is not just rhetorical because today you have been paying attention to your experience your mind and your body and the environment and this community of meditators on this retreat and you have observed a lot. How have you understood what you've observed? Has what you observed been understood in a way that causes you to be happy, excited, confident, upbeat, or possibly judgmental and critical and depressed and not so optimistic and doubtful and otherwise. Because as we know, there are different ways of understanding any experience. So before we would ever undertake a new project or a new activity, whether it's a sport or investing or a relationship, We'd do some research. We'd, we'd, we'd try to get as much information as we could about how to do, how to understand, how to work with what we're going to be engaged in. Well, so too with meditation or mindful awareness. If we just come to practice with our ordinary conditioning, as we all do, how do we know that we'll understand what we experience in any way that leads to anything that the Buddha realized? Or will we just reaffirm our own you know, self-opinion, self-judgments, family conditioning, cultural expectations that have brought us here in the first place? So the question that I want to speak about tonight is, how do we understand skillfully what it is that we experience? Sayadu Tejaniya says that one of the first jobs of a retreatant or a yogi or a meditator is to hear what is called right view or the skillful view. 
And I just want to put this idea of skillful view. Someone asked about it this morning, is what we're talking about the first path factor, first of the Noble Eightfold Path factors, right view, right thought. Yes, this is what I'll be speaking about tonight. But I want to place it in the teachings of the Buddha for you so that you can, you can understand the value of what I want to speak about tonight. Because, you know, the Buddha, after lifetimes of practice and aspiring to uh, disentangle his heart mind from suffering and the causes of suffering in his lifetime as uh, Siddhartha, Gautama Buddha, he practiced and he realized what the Dharma, the truth, and when he taught, he taught what he'd realized. And the path to his realization, the Noble Eightfold Path, is comprised of three trainings. The first training is um, a training in morality or uh, a mindful awareness of our intention before speaking or acting so that we don't act out our tormented mind causing harm to ourselves and others. And this is what we are undertaking here when we take the precepts. We're watching our speech and behavior. We're watching our impulse to speak and act in a way that might just be acting out our mind in an unskillful way that causes ourselves or others harm. So it's a practice of restraint. But you might have noticed, even if you kept the precepts really well today, that there was still some obsessing in the mind about what you might like to say, you might like to do, or did in the past that caused you some anxiety, fear, or caused others some pain or shame or humiliation. And so we can see that even though we can possibly control or exercise restraint of our speech and behavior, we can still suffer a lot with the mind that is obsessing. And so the Buddha offered a second training in the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the training in... uh, We'll call it mindfulness and samadhi, or tranquility of mind. And what this does is, as we've been practicing today, just trying to be mindful, trying to recognize the present moment and be with it, uh, what it does is it, it is a development of the mind that is temporarily, momentarily, pure of or free from torments. And so... All of you today have, you know, in your mindful practice, have experienced innumerable moments of just being with the way things are and not tormenting yourself too much, not feeling totally obsessed with anything. And so as we develop mindfulness, we purify the mind, and this allows us to experience the, the happiness of the secluded mind, the mind that's secluded from obsession. But as we also probably all have observed today, even though we can be mindful some of the time, maybe even much of the time, there's some times where we just lose it. (laughs) Conditions conspire to undermine our best efforts and our best intention and all our faith, and we end up just getting in a snit about something, having a button pushed by somebody or something or ourself, and some 
what we call latent torment got activated and were suffering. You might have been anxious, you might have been judgmental, you might have been impatient, you might have been, you know, fearful, uh, depressed, uh, doubtful. Any of these are, they're not uh, continuously present in our life, but the seed and the potential of them arising and bothering us, we could say it's always there. And so the Buddha offered a third training in the Noble Eightfold Path, which is called the wisdom training or the practice of Vipassana. And what Vipassana does is it doesn't just purify our speech and behavior. It doesn't just purify our mind. It purifies our understanding so that we stop understanding things unskillfully. Meaning we stop understanding things or we start understanding or we continue or we grow in our ability to understand things skillfully. And the two factors of the wisdom path factors are right view or skillful views, skillful ways of understanding and skillful thought or skillful attitudes of mind which are applying those views or understandings in our life. Now when I say right view, right thought, what I mean by right is that it is the skillful way of understanding, it's the skillful way of thinking that leads to less suffering. The Buddha's spin on everything was suffering and the end of suffering. If you were going to listen to the Buddha comment on any news report you saw, he'd be pointing to, this is suffering, this is the cause of suffering, this is the end of suffering, and the way to the end of suffering. And so when I say, or when the Buddha says, right view, it is the skillful view that leads to less or the end of suffering. So tonight sometimes I'll be saying right view or skillful view, but understand it this way. There are many ways that we can understand our experience, but the right way or the skillful way is what I'm going to be referring to as the way that leads to the end of suffering. So I want to speak about skillful views of three areas of our practice here. Skillful views of the Dharma, skillful views of meditation, and then skillful views of understanding and liberation. I figured, hey, first day of the retreat, might as well get... <laughs> Might as well get to the bottom line quick, because that's what we're here for. You know, stop suffering. Okay. So, Sariputta was the second to the Buddha of monks at the Buddha's time in the development of wisdom. And one time there were some monks talking about right view, skillful view, and they were having a, a, a conversation and they asked Sariputta, well, if right view is so important, how do we establish the how do we establish right view in our own mind? How, how, what is it, what is it we have to do? And Sariputta said, "Well, there are two elements. 
to right view or establishing right view in your own heart. And the first of them is that we need to hear what the right view is from someone else. Huh. Well, we're all 21st century Western educated and highly educated for the most part, uh, intelligent, problem solving, capable, competent, autonomous individuals that can do it for ourselves. Thank you very much. And it's not always easy to hear someone trying to tell us this is the right way to do. This is what you've got to know. You can't figure it out for yourself. You've got to listen to me. Well, that's what Sariputta was saying. You can't figure it out for yourself. Huh. Really? Well, you know what? Maybe we've been trying for a long time and we finally got here, realizing that we've tried everything else. Now this is the only remaining thing left. Think of it that way. So, you know, when the Buddhist teaching meets our Western arrogant education, maybe, um, something's got to give. So, we're used to this already. Let me give you an example. You know, um, the sun is just setting over there in the west. And in a few hours, it'll rise over here in the east. And we'll see it go over the sky uh, overhead. And again, tomorrow evening, it'll set over there in the west. And later, it'll rise in the east and do that again and again and again. From our own observation, from what we see for ourselves, we can't but conclude the sun circles the earth. Right? We see it. We're right here. We're on earth. We're not going anywhere. And the sun's going around us like that. And yet, there have been those in the course of human history that are able to observe the sun's movement in the sky along with the moon and the stars and other additional knowledge. And they understand that no, the sun isn't going around the earth. In fact, it's the earth's spinning on its axis that creates day and night. And in the course of a year, it's the earth that goes around the sun. And every one of us have been told that, contrary to our own perceptions. And we believe it. We've been tested on it. And we all pass the test. Because if I asked any one of you, does the, does the sun go around the earth? You'd all say no. And yet you haven't observed it otherwise, unless you're an astronomer, and there may be those among you that are really have that kind of knowledge where you can confirm for yourself. And yet we got the right view from those who understood things more profoundly, and we believe it. What the Buddha was sharing with us, or what Sariputta was saying, is you need to hear the right view. You need to hear the skillful view from someone else so that when you then pay wise attention the second element of establishing right view in your own heart is wise attention. When you practice with wise attention, then you can confirm for yourself. But first you need to hear it. So this is the basis of why it's important as we begin this practice to actually hear right view so that we can practice with the right view in mind. Because we could... We could come here and practice some technique, you know, pay attention to the breath at the nostrils, just do it. Do as I say. 
We could do it. We'd have some experience. We'd have some understanding. Is it right view, right understanding? Or is it just our own conditioned, deeply conditioned, uh, habitual, self-interested, family-oriented, culturally condoned understanding? Or is it the understanding that leads to the end of suffering? And so, if you're going to be here for nine days and make all this effort, wouldn't you rather be wise and skillful in how you understand your experience? Or just do it and just trust that you'll figure it out. The Dhamma, so that's the foundation of skillful views. The Dhamma that the Buddha taught is the truth or the way of understanding how things have come to be. Okay. We could say that it is the study of nature because when we look around us and we see the way things have come to be in the natural world, we understand, oh, this, this is the truth. This, this is the way it is. You know, you, you can understand uh, the seasons, you can understand the life of a plant or the life of uh, animals uh, because this is the way it is. There are laws governing the unfolding of the natural world and we accept that, that there are these natural laws. Well, what we are doing in our own mindful observation of this process called my mind, my body, is we're studying, we're observing in order to learn the nature of the mind, in order to learn the nature of the body, and in order to understand them in a way that, well, will lead to less suffering. So everything that we are observing is nature, natural processes, and in some ways you could say, we're scientists. We're scientists of ourself. All that occurs in the body, all that occurs in the mind, is natural. It doesn't arise accidentally. It arises due to causes and conditions. Now, we may not understand all these causes and all these conditions. We may not, may not be aware of them. But nevertheless, it's not haphazard. The unfolding of this life for each one of us is not haphazard. There are laws governing the unfolding of the mind, the body, and how things come to be moment to moment. For example, one of the conditions, one of the causes and conditions, or some of the causes and conditions for our experience today is being here on retreat being here among other like-minded people, practicing in a similar way, hearing the teachings of the Buddha, getting some understanding uh, of them, having practiced or heard the teachings previously and maybe repeatedly. And all of these are causes and conditions contributing to what you experience today. If you weren't here on retreat, if you, if you stayed home or you went to work or you went and played this weekend, you would not have this kind of experience. So it's easy to see 
causes and conditions give rise to our experience. Many of those causes and conditions are not under our control. So much of life is, is just, it just appears to us. What happens to the body? We're trying our best. I mean, eat as well as you can, do your exercise, do your yoga, get fresh air, do everything you can, take your meds. There's no guarantee. What happens to the body is not under our immediate control, right? So to the mind, you know, do the best you can with understanding your mind and being kind and being loving and being patient and being generous and all that you can. What appears in the mind, we often don't invite and don't really wish it to be there, right? You know, as Saito Tejaniya says, the mind is not yours, you know, but you're responsible for it. I mean, the thoughts that enter your mind, the emotions that enter your heart, if we had a choice, we wouldn't let them in, right? We just say, hey, wait, I don't want to think like that. I don't want to feel that. And yet we can't. Causes and conditions have given rise to them. They're not under our immediate control. But once they arise, we got to do something about them or we're going to suffer, right? So if we don't take care of our bodies, if we don't take care of our minds as best we can, then we're going to suffer more. How do we take care of our bodies? How do we take care of our minds skillfully? Well, for that we need to pay attention, don't we? We really need to pay attention to how we're experiencing, what we're experiencing, how we're reacting, because so much of what passes for happiness or suffering or unhappiness in this world is not what happens, but it's how we relate to it. The weather's going to be what it is, both externally and internally. The mind's weather, is it going to be stormy tomorrow or not? Do we know? We don't know. We don't know what's going to go through the mind tomorrow. But how we relate to it or the skills that we develop in learning to relate to the weather patterns of the mind are as useful as learning the weather pat- how to deal with the weather patterns in the world at large. So some of the causes and conditions or the conditionality, the laws of conditioning that govern or guide the unfolding of our experience, it's important to just get a sense of what I'm talking about. We're all biological beings. You know, the laws of nature include all the biological laws. As a human being, we're born, we live, we grow old, we die. It's inevitable. It's in there. Well, it's not our fault. It's because of the laws of biology that we can understand. Oh, this is, this is natural. Everything that happens to us in the course of a human existence is a natural occurrence. So I might just use this understanding to point to an understanding that's really important in practice. No matter what you experience, it's normal. No matter what you experience, it's normal. It's natural. It's not a mistake. And it is okay to be aware of it. There isn't anything that occurs in the body, in the mind, in the environment that it's not okay to be aware of. It might be unpleasant. It might be terrifying. 
It might be shameful. It might be humiliating. That's the way it is. It might be joyful. It might be ecstatic. It might be blissful. It might be transcendent. It's normal. It's natural. It's not a mistake to be aware of it. Give your awareness full permission to acknowledge everything. We're also subject to the physical laws of nature, like the law of gravity. Is there anybody here that debates, challenges, struggles against the law of gravity? <laughs> we, we don't. We're not, we're not that foolish. We know that if you don't live in alignment with this law, the law of gravity, you're going to suffer. If you don't live in, in, in alignment with the other laws of nature, you're going to cause yourself unnecessary suffering. You know, the laws of chemistry, the laws of physics, you know, what you put in your mouth, what you breathe in through your lungs, chemical reactions. It's not because you're a good person or a bad person or a spiritual person that, that bad things may happen. It's the laws of nature. It's not your fault, so to speak. What we experience in this body and this mind is governed by, and we can begin to see, governed by the laws of nature. Well, we in the West, Western scientists, have a clear understanding of the laws of biological laws of nature, the physical laws of nature. But it was the Buddha who further developed an understanding of additional laws of nature that govern the unfolding of the mind. Now, we in the West are not so familiar with it. Uh, we're just beginning to learn about it in and through meditation and Western science, neuroscientists and others are beginning to study it and confirm much of what the Buddha recognized some time ago as, oh, this is, this is the way the mind works. You know, and it's not accidental and it's not magical. It's not just Buddhist. It's, this is, these are, there are laws governing the unfolding of the mind. One of them, and I'll just point to a couple so that you can uh, verify it for yourself, see for yourself, is that we have within us, each one of us, what, you, what we could call something like a baseline mentality or a mental legacies that is a development of the mind based on what has occurred in the past. So if, if for those of you who, who are parents or have been parents, you know, when the little one comes out of the womb, it doesn't take <laughs> but a couple of hours or a couple of days before you start to recognize that their personality is different than their siblings. And you can see it. They're, they're acting differently, quickly. And their lives develop on the baseline, upon that baseline mentality that they enter this world with. Well, we too have a baseline mentality that is both composed of both wholesome factors of mind and unwholesome factors of mind. We could say there's a certain, um, what's called the parami profile. You know, we all have some development of generosity, loving kindness, equanimity, understanding, renunciation, resolve, determination, truthfulness. We all have some baseline mentality, kind of like our default setting when it comes to generosity or loving kindness or patience or understanding. And sometimes we 
just rest on that baseline. And sometimes we're actively developing it more, as we do with Dharma practices. But sometimes we don't even meet our baseline. We act out and we could say that some of the latent torments of the mind become more active. We each have a a kind of a baseline uh, tendency to react with aversion or fear or anxiety or greed or delusion or confusion or depression and the list goes on. And we know that. And we see within ourselves that I have these triggers or I have these tendencies, I have these predilections, I have these, or they seem to be kind of not, not, not permanent. We don't want to say they're permanent or that they're stamped in solid because they fluctuate. And if we practice a lot, we can actually change our baseline mentality. So we don't want to think that it's anything that rigid. But on the other hand, in a quiescent state of mind, we've just got a baseline that just kind of is our default setting. We can see that a lot when we start practicing here. Where does your mind go when you're not engaged in external activity? Because that's what we're doing all day, you know? I mean, we're not engaged out here in external activity. And try as you might to pay attention to your object of choice in meditation. I don't know about you, but I fail miserably most of the time. And I end up, well, rummaging around in my baseline mentality of, you know, old, old habits and thoughts and feelings and, you know, projections and hopes and wishes, aspirations and confusions, delusions. And is that familiar or am I alone here? Okay. So it's helpful to understand that what we're discovering, because those of you who can agree with what I'm saying have observed this today. You've seen it in your own mind. You've seen it in your own heart. Don't deny what you've seen. Don't, don't, don't try to think, don't think that there's something better because better in the sense of, oh, there's a hidden side of myself that is much better than what I've seen today. <laughs> wait, wait. You know, there is, but there's also the flip side. You know, there's other things down there too. But just acknowledge, oh this is oh this is this is where my mind goes. Hmm. Okay. Why? Well, because it's my habit. It's what we've done habitually for well, years, decades, maybe lifetimes for all we know. But the a corollary understanding that is helpful, necessary, is that whenever we engage in any Dharma practice, the precepts, taking the refuges and uh, refuges and precepts, uh, practicing mindfulness, uh, practicing insight, loving kindness, whatever it is you're doing, generosity, some of you practicing generosity, whenever we practice developing skillful qualities of mind, this too is going to have an impact in overcoming, gradually undermining, and eventually eliminating the unskillful, unwholesome default settings of the mind. So we're not just passive victims of the way things have been. We're active co-creators of the future. 
And so being here, undertaking these practices is a skillful, a skillful way of working with the material at hand. So that's how a few understandings of the Dharma that I wanted to share. And I want, now I want to share a few ways of understanding meditation, meditation practice and practices so that you can understand maybe more skillfully what it is we're actually doing here. And in, in part, it's necessary because there's a lot of different meditations. And uh, many of you have tried probably many different meditations. And, you know, I'll say right at the beginning, they're all useful. They're all, they all can be skillful at, for different purposes at different times in your life, depending on how well you practice them. So I'm not saying that some are good and some are bad. They all have their benefit. They all have their value. They all have the capacity to develop some wholesome, skillful qualities of mind. So understand that. But when we step back from the specifics of the technique, whatever that particular technique is, whether it's loving-kindness practice or practicing anapanasati of observation of the breath at the nostrils or the rising falling of the abdomen, or whether you're doing a mantra of some sort, or whether you're doing a visualization, or you're doing uh, some other reflection. Uh, in every moment, something is being known by the mind. In every moment, the mind is knowing something. Okay. So in meditation practice, what we do usually, often, is try to direct the mind to a particular something to know. So that if we choose the breath at the nostrils, we um, aim, kind of point our attention towards this area of the body in order to know the experience of the breath as we breathe in and out at the tip of the nostrils. And the more continuously we can do that, the more we can remember to do that, continuously we can do that, the more, well, we'd say successful we are at being doing that practice. And the result of that kind of practice is that the mind becomes calm. That's what, that's what that kind of continuity of mindful awareness of the chosen object leads to. It leads to the mind being calm. Because if you just continually just send your mind over and over and over and over and over again to a single object, and I could be holding my finger up here and I'd say, just look at this, just keep looking at this, don't look at anything else, and whenever you find yourself not looking at it, come back and look at it. If you did that and you just worked at it quite diligently, pretty soon your mind would just be locked in. And when the mind is locked in to that object in a, con in a very continuous way, nothing else gets in. Thoughts of the past that disturb you, excitement about the future that would kind of seduce you, they don't get in because you're on that object <laughs> right there. You don't let in or nothing else can get in because the mind is so powerfully directed towards the chosen object. Okay, that's what samatha or collectedness of mind or tranquility of mind how it's cultivated, how it's developed, and it's great to know how to do that. Because, hey, let's face it, we all live pretty busy, stressful, chaotic, 
dispersed lives. Don't we? <laughs> you know, I mean, we got, we got a lot to do. We got many things to do in one day and the mind is just all over the place. If we had the capacity to just kind of sit down and within three minutes just go stillness, calm, nothing getting in, it would be a relief, wouldn't it? That's the benefit of doing samatha or, or tranquility kind of practice because you can learn to do that. It just takes practice. It's not a matter of can you do it or not. The mind does it if it is trained to do it. And anyone can train the mind to do that. So that's the benefit. Now you might say, yeah, well, I was trying to do that today, but <laughs> I didn't have that kind of experience. Well, what happened? You know, you sit down, you say, okay, I'm pay attention to the moment. Pay attention to the present moment's experience. And you, know, and you might be using the breath, or you might be using the posture, you might be using sounds, whatever your particular object to kind of begin the practice or steady the mind or steady your attention is. And, you know, breathing in, breathing out, spacing out. And when you space out, really you space in, and the mind goes into a train of thought. And while we're lost on that train of thought, we don't know where we are. We don't know our gender. We don't know our age. We don't know where we're located. We don't know if we're sitting, walking, standing, sleeping. We don't, we don't know anything, right? Come on, nod your head, yes or no. You know, did, you have, did you have some mind today that was just spaced in, lost, completely gonzo, right? And while we're, while we're lost in thought, we don't know it. We do we? And yet, when that train of thought comes to an end, <sighs> what a relief. Just think if you got on a train of thought and it never ended. <laughs> Lifetimes could go by and you would never recognize that that's not you. you know, but anyway, you all came back, right? You're all here now. Okay, phew, that train of thought's over. So <laughs> when the train of thought comes to an end and we find ourselves, oh, here I am. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm on the retreat. Okay, breathing in, breathing out. You know, you kind of recollect yourself and begin again. But sometimes, just in that moment of coming back, you can see that whole train of thought. You can recognize everywhere the mind has been thinking, everything the mind's been thinking about. You know, from here to there, to da 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 and boop. But while it was happening, you didn't know it. So even though we may think there are periods of time when the mind isn't knowing something, the mind is always knowing something. Awareness may not always be present. What we're doing here with this practice is cultivating the awareness. We're not cultivating the knowing. The mind does it all the time, even when you're sleeping. What we're cultivating here is this ability to recognize or to remember to recognize the present moment's experience. This is Mindfulness. Mindfulness is remembering to recognize present moment's experience. And it can be mindfulness of a single object, like the breath, or metta, or sound. Or it can be mindfulness of changing objects. It can be sound, sensation, a thought, a memory, a plan, an ache, a breath. And... But it's remembering to recognize 
the present moment's experience, whether it's a chosen object or a choiceless object. doesn't really matter. Mindfulness is the recognizing it, remembering to recognize it. The field of our observation in practicing vipassana or insight is this body and this mind. If we want to develop tranquility or samatha types of practice, concentration practice or collected practices, we choose an object, a single object, send our mind there. But in vipassana practice, we're not choosing a single object exclusively. We may use a chosen object to uh, come back to or to collect the mind around in the beginning of practice, but gradually and eventually the mind quite naturally opens and we notice other experience. Sensations in the body, sounds in the room, thoughts, moods, feelings, emotions, and the breath. In Vipassana practice, because we are inevitably opening the mind to a wide array of objects, we want to be careful not to think there's something wrong or that you're doing the practice unskillfully when you notice other experience. So you may, you may start with paying attention to the breath, for example, but when the mind gets lost in train of thought, gets caught up in some memory that's uh, painful or some plan that's exciting or some sen- other sensations in the body, that's not a mistake. If you remember to recognize the present moment's experience, you're being mindful. Even if it's a wide range of things, not the breath at all, far from the breath, you may never get back to the breath. And yet you can still be doing effective, efficient, skillful Vipassana practice. So when you notice tomorrow or this evening, it's tomorrow, when you notice that you're not on your chosen object, the breath, or your posture or sounds, whatever it is you're using, don't, just be careful not to judge your practice as being bad or not skillful or you're not doing it right. Instead, see if you can remember to recognize what it is that you're being aware of. Then you'll be practicing Vipassana. Remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. Objects of experience or objects of the mind can be anything. We usually start, we often start with some physical sensations like the breath or the posture because physical sensations are very distinct. They're very defined. They occur in a location. They have a very tangible feeling to them. So they're time limited. They have a location. They have a texture that's really easy to kind of get, so to speak. We can touch it almost with our body, or what is our body? When we get into subtler experience like thoughts, well, thoughts are pretty noticeable, and yet they're pretty quick, they're pretty slippery, 
And does anybody know where thoughts occur? They don't have a location. They don't have a particular texture. They got a kind of an, an, an they got some, there's something about them that's pretty compelling. They haven't, they have a characteristic and yet they're subtler than sensations. When we get into mental states or moods, they're even more subtle than thoughts. Emotions are strong, but where do they occur? There's a whole package of a story, physical sensations, feelings in the heart, all wrapped up and inflamed with this sense of me. Emotional storm. Big deal. It's not a mistake. It's not wrong to be aware of your emotion. It's not wrong to be aware of sensations in the body. It's not wrong to be aware of thoughts. It's not wrong to be aware of moods, mental states. You know, if you feel anxiety, if you feel totally content, they're subtle. Some of them are subtle. But these are objects as much as and as effective as the breath when it comes to a development comes to developing insight. So be careful not to dismiss anything from your experience. No matter what you become aware of, it's okay. It can be effective practice if you remember to recognize it in the moment that it arises. This meditation, meditation practice, is the work of the mind. It's not particularly, or it's not exclusively, your posture. It's not how the body feels. It's not what you eat. It's what the mind is doing. So while you're sitting, while you're eating, while you're doing the movement with Franz, while you're doing your yogi job, what's the mind doing? Are we aware of the mind? Are we working with the mind? Are we aware of whether the mind is present with the body or not. Because it is through recognizing the mind's presence or absence, or the color of the mind, the flavor, you know, the, the uh, uh, what would you call it, the weather pattern of the mind while you're doing your yogi job, the weather pattern of the mind while you're doing the mindful movement with Franz, or the weather pattern of the mind when you're eating or bathing. It's observing the mind, it's recognizing the mind that is the meditation practice itself, which is the development of the meditation. But it's not only mindfulness. Mindfulness, as I have mentioned, is the function of mindfulness as a factor of mind is to remember. It is mindfulness that remembers to recognize. To recognize is perception. That's another factor of mind. But it is mindfulness, the function of mindfulness, to remember. And, you know, if there was somebody that was just kind of sitting on your shoulder, this little, this little mindfulness reminder, sitting on your shoulder as you went about your day, just saying, okay, now, you're, you're about to reach for the door. Notice that. Remember, recognize reaching for the door. Okay. Now you're, you're going to turn and you're going to look at the bulletin board. So now remember to recognize that you're turning to look. Now remember, you're... You're going to recognize that you're excited because there's a note there for you. Recognize that. You know, now, if there was some little, <laughs> little mindfulness prompt here on your shoulder telling you to do that, you could do it, but you'd probably get pretty... <laughs> 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 you 
you know, um, it'd be hard to live with. So what we're doing as we offer you instructions in the morning and through the Dharma talks and through the mindful movement is we're offering you these prompts to remember, to recognize the present moment's experience so that you will internalize them yourself. So that instead of us bothering you, (laughs) okay. Vipassana meditation is done effectively, most effectively, when we're willing to observe our experience. That means when we're tired, are you willing to observe tiredness? When you're hungry, are you willing to observe hunger? When you're frustrated, are you willing to observe frustration? As you're listening to the talk, do you know what your state of mind is? Are you willing to acknowledge that? Meditation, Vipassana meditation, is learning to observe with interest, not in order to get rid of something or not even in order to explain something or to figure it out, but rather to understand it. To observe something so carefully, so continuously, whenever it arises, that you begin to understand its nature. Not just what you've been taught or conditioned or are led to believe or have a habit of believing, but what you observe for yourself because of this repeated willingness to just observe in order to learn. When the Buddha was asked how it is that some some people have uh, a lot of understanding and are free and suffer less, he said, those who ask a lot of questions grow in wisdom. And it's not that it's not that they've asked questions of other people or asked questions that they can find the answers in the book or through Googling. They've asked questions of themselves, usually along the line of, what is this experience? What is going on? Is there awareness here? Those kind of questions lead to wisdom. Mark Epstein, one of our colleagues in the Buddhist uh, psychological community, has written, as the, Buddha, as the Buddhist view, right view, as the Buddhist view has consistently demonstrated, it is the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether a given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. To work something through means to change one's view. If we try instead to just change our emotional response to experience, we may achieve some short-term success, but we are still bound by the forces of attachment and aversion to the very feelings which we're trying to be free from. Okay, that's a lot of words. Let me tell you what he's saying. (laughs) When something arises in our experience, as it often does, and we feel irritated or angry, when we've recognized or when we don't recognize even, we're just acting it out and we feel inflamed with anger, 
many of us have learned that the antidote to anger is loving kindness. So, if you get a surge of anger, irritation, or impatience with someone here, you know, they're going through the line a little too slow, they're making a little too much noise, they're breathing too loud, or whatever, 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 I mean, it can be anything, and you find yourself irritated, impatient, anxious, the idea, oh, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be peacefuler, <laughs> whatever. And we may, we may know how to do that, and we may have some success at kind of calming down. But the source of that anger, the understanding that led to you being angry, is still there. Vipassana practice doesn't resort to the metta initially. It says, oh, what is the nature of this anger? What's the nature of this experience here? Let me see if I can open to and really grok the nature of aversion. Feel it. See its nature. Feel how it moves, what it does to the mind, what it, how it, what it feels like in the body, what the story of your anger is. In order to understand it, how is it that we get hooked by aversion? How is it that we get hooked by fear? How is it that we get hooked by desire? How is it that we get hooked by depression? How is it that we get hooked by what was obsessing you today? Vipassana practice observes these experiences of suffering in order to understand them. But to observe them, we have to be willing to endure what they feel like. Anger doesn't feel pleasant. Desire doesn't feel pleasant. Frustration doesn't feel pleasant. Anxiety doesn't feel pleasant. So there takes a willingness to open to unpleasantness willingly. That's what we're up against. Our fear of unpleasantness our fear of being uncomfortable. I've often said something to the effect, don't let comfort be your roadblock. Don't limit your aspirations to what your comfort or discomfort will allow you. Because let's face it, we've all faced a lot of pain. We've all experienced a lot of pain, physical pain, emotional pain, loneliness, Abandonment, betrayal, fear, anxiety, depression. You know, it's... <laughs> I know I'm not alone. Why are we afraid of them? We've already experienced them. We've survived. But if we learn to observe and are willing to observe, we can begin to understand them skillfully we can begin to cultivate the right view of these states of mind, a way that can bring them to an end of suffering. This is the practice of Vipassana. It's not just calming the mind down by staying with the breath, staying with the sound, staying with a sensation or a mantra or something like that. It's being willing to, well, remember to recognize every moment as it occurs. This is the way that we develop right view. 
skillful view in our practice. It takes patience. It takes trial and error. It takes being willing to experiment. None of us are going to get it right the first time or even the first dozen times. But it's the path. This is the path to experiment with awareness, to experiment being aware of all of our experience, not being not being derailed, not being frustrated, not, not, not having some expectation that somehow the goal of practice is just sitting here in exquisite, subtle bliss. How long could you be satisfied with that? Don't for a minute think it could be a long time. They have this, they have this question in Burma. They say, you know, you think that pleasant experience is what you really want. But just imagine your favorite meal, spaghetti or steak or, you know, salad, whatever it is. Just imagine your favorite meal in your favorite restaurant with your favorite person in, okay? Now imagine that's all you ever had for a meal hereafter. How long would that remain your favorite meal? Maybe a day and a half, two days, maybe. After that, it would not... That pleasantness wouldn't do it. Don't look for joy. Don't look for bliss. Don't look for tranquility to be the savior of your practice. It's understanding. It's changing our views, changing our way of understanding our experience that will free us from suffering. This is the practice of Vipassana. As one of my favorite teachers has said, sometimes you get shown the light in the strangest of places, if you look at it right. Vipassana is about learning to look at it right. So that we see, oh, this is the way to stop suffering. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. When the mind is supported by right view and is unclouded by confusion, greed, or negativity, we recognize reality accurately. And this kind of seeing our world is seeing with the eyes of the Dharma, and it is the foundation for well-being and liberation. So thank you for listening to the Dharma. Now the schedule says